Let's turn in our Bibles this morning to John's Gospel, chapter 21. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now and they have Bibles. You just wave to them and get their attention. They'll be happy to get one into your hands. And it's so much better to not only hear the Word of God, but to see it with your own eyes right there on the printed page. So... They're there to serve you that way. Sunday mornings, we're studying the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order. And we're within just uh, less than a handful of weeks of finishing this series. And then perhaps we'll do a little short uh, series of of a prophecy update. And it's taking me so long to get through this, I think we'll be raptured, though, before we get to the update. I feel really kind of bad, actually, because... All these events are happening, and I'm at perfect peace because it all lines up with the Scriptures. And, and, uh, but I feel bad that other people that don't know what the Scriptures have to say about this are enduring all of the anxiety related to it. And um, so uh, that's my bad, but uh, we will get to it if the Lord tarries in a few weeks. This morning, though, for our attention, John's Gospel, chapter 21, two verses, verses 18 and 19. Jesus speaking to Peter, he said, most assuredly, verily, verily, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and you walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. And this Jesus spoke, signifying by what death Peter would glorify God. And when he had said this to Peter, Jesus said to him, follow me. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Every jot, every tittle, every thought, every intent of your heart that's found in it. We realize, Lord, it takes the volume of the book to properly fashion us in our Christian life. We thank you for the volume of the book, and we thank you specifically for these two verses that we're going to look at this morning. And we ask, Lord, that The voice of your spirit would be great in our hearts, Lord, as we listen to this truth and study it, a truth that's going to outlive the heavens and the earth. We pray, Lord, that this passage would do its wonderful, perfect work in each one of our lives this morning, bringing perspective, equipping us, Lord, for the work of the ministry. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. One of the things that's a fascination uh, for me as a Christian in this culture is to watch how our culture addresses the subject of uh, death. And I watch uh, how much of the rest of the world addresses the subject of death and and even in cultures that are much more primitive, primitive technologically than us, they process death in a little more open, a little more healthy way. There are parts of the world that when a person dies, Their body is carried physically through the entire village to the place of their burial and that they're buried. And there's this constant communication uh, to the population of those tribes or of those nations that death is real and death is coming. And there's that kind of mature attitude toward death. In our culture, we do everything that we almost possibly can to avoid the subject of death. 
we put bodies that die in particular buildings within our communities. We transport them in special vehicles, and it's kind of an attitude of out of sight, out of mind. We are not comfortable with death as a culture because we don't address it regularly, and we certainly don't address it in a healthy way. I think that all of this was taken to the most ludicrous extreme a number of years ago when I was reading an article in a magazine or in a newspaper and read that a particular hospital in the United States of America determined that they were no longer going to use the term death for their patients. They instead chose to use the phrase negative patient outcome. So it gives you a sense for which people, for us, how uncomfortable we are as a culture with death, how we try to keep it a secret, keep it from the forefront of our minds, not address it until we absolutely have to. And thankfully, one of the great things to be thankful about the Bible, and thankfully for us as Christians, God intends us to view death Uh, a lot with a much greater depth than that and with a a far greater maturity. And this passage in the Bible this morning is one of many within the Bible that accomplishes exactly that in our lives as Christians. Just moments before uh, Jesus spoke these words to Peter, Jesus had publicly restored Peter back into his ministry following his denials of Jesus And he had done so in the presence of several other of the apostles. He then told uh, Peter how he was to spend the rest of his life, that he was no longer going to spend his life as a fisherman, but that he was going to spend his life now as a shepherd, tending and feeding God's people. And then Jesus did something that is very interesting, at least to me, in that he then went on to inform Peter that he would die a martyr's death and being faithful to God's call upon his life. And then he told him the form that that death would take. Notice concerning Peter's death in verse 18, Jesus is very specific and he and we notice the details that he laid out concerning the timing. It would occur when Peter was old. He revealed also to Peter the means by which he would die. He would serve the Lord to an old age, but in the end he would die with his hands outstretched. That was a euphemism for crucifixion in those days. And when Peter was younger, he had great freedom of movement. He could go wherever he wished. But here the Lord told him that at the end of his life he would be arrested, he would be bound, and he would be carried off to execution. Now, I would like to say, just for the record, that I have no interest in knowing how I'm going to die or when I'm going to die until the time comes. I'd like that to remain a mystery. I remember uh, having conversations as a kid. Perhaps it was a melancholy childhood. I don't know. But maybe you shared the same kind of uh, conversations, but sometimes walking with friends, maybe home from school or on those uh, summer days where you were off and you'd go off hiking through the hills or on a bicycle ride with friends, and you'd basically exhaust every subject that you could think of to talk about on those days that just seemed to uh, last forever, ever, but just kind of zip 
uh, by. And sometimes we would talk about ways that we uh, would or we wouldn't want to die. And sometimes we would, uh, as we would discuss that, we would then force everyone in the group to choose between two uh, equally horrible ways to die. Would you want to die by drowning? Would you want to die in a fire? These are the kind of things that we would discuss. And then the discussion would inevitably move to whether any of us would want to know the day of our death. And I can say that in the conversations I had with my friends, all of us were in total agreement we would not want to know the day that we would die. That would be too much knowledge. It would just, uh, knowing that day would so dominate the rest of our life that it would, uh, that would be all that we would think about. And so we concluded it was better not to know the date of our death. And so why would Jesus then tell Peter these things? Was it cruelty on the part of Jesus? It wasn't cruelty. What Jesus was doing with Peter here was communicating to him something wonderful, actually. He's declaring to Peter, Peter, you're going to be faithful to me to the end. You're going to live a long, faithful life. There aren't going to be any more denials on your part of me. In fact, you won't even deny me and deny that you know me, even in the face of death, even in the face of one of the worst deaths that this world can mete out. And I think this would have been a great encouragement to Peter Because to be faithful to Jesus, no matter what, even at the risk of death, was what was most important to him. And even when before he did fail and he said to Jesus, he said, Lord, I'm ready to go with you and both to prison and to death. He meant that he wanted that to be true of himself, but he didn't yet have the power of the Holy Spirit to uh, come in behind those wishes of his heart and give him the physical ability uh, to do that. One day he would, following the baptism of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and he ended up living a faithful, powerful, victorious life uh, that Jesus told them that he would live. One of the important books that I read early as a Christian, and, um, and I, I hardly recommend anybody read it, and I think the earlier the better in our Christian life, is a book entitled Fox's Book of Martyrs. And in that book, it lists all of, not all of them, but a great cross-section of men and women who have died uh, for their faith in Jesus Christ, died while being faithful to God's calling upon their life, and and died in the same way that Peter died here, maybe not in the exact form that the death took, but being faithful in the same way. Concerning Peter's death, the Fox's Book of Martyrs describes that chapter in church history in this way. When Herod Agrippa... And Acts chapter 12 caused James to be put to death, and he found that it delighted all of the Jewish religious leaders to do so. He, trying to please the Jewish religious leaders, then had Peter arrested and was intending to sacrifice him next. But as we know the story, an angel of the Lord uh, released Peter from that incarceration and uh, much to Herod's frustration. And then, according to tradition, Peter later went to Rome, where he was ultimately imprisoned nine months for his faith. 
and at the end of which he was severely scourged and then crucified with his head upside down because he demanded it to be so, declaring that he was not worthy to be crucified in the same position that his Lord had been crucified in. I think it's really hard, it is for me and perhaps for some of you, really hard to picture uh, this picture of Peter, who you just come to love so much in the scriptures, the goodness of his heart, without guile, certainly had his uh, flaws, but he's just so lovable, and to realize that he ended up in being faithful to God's calling upon his life and faithful to God's word, that ultimately his body hung crucified upside down on a Roman cross. No complaining on Peter's part related to any of this. He wrote in his second epistle near his death, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 12, and he said, Therefore, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know them and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it right. As long as I am in this tent, speaking of the physical body, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, my body, just as the Lord Jesus Christ showed me. And moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. And so there was this consciousness in Peter's life that death was coming and that consciousness in his life as a Christian, far from terrifying him, it was something that kept him diligent to use every opportunity and every day that he had in order to advance the kingdom of God and to preach and to teach the word of God and to evangelize the lost. How could Jesus, who loved Peter beyond measure, call upon Peter without any, I mean, there's no hesitation in this. Uh, Jesus doesn't in any, there's no sense of regret. He just unflinchingly calls Peter to this life and to this death. And how could Jesus do that, call him to follow him, knowing that the end of that path would be a violent death? I think the answer is found in verse 19. And it was all for the privilege of following him. Jesus said to Peter, follow me. It is for the privilege of living life and the death that Jesus has prepared for us as Christians. What could make it worth it in Peter's life? It's worth it for Peter and for us for the privilege of living and dying while walking in fellowship with the Lord. When Jesus said, follow me, that word follow there, it means to go behind, but it also carries the idea of to accompany. And so the command to follow me carries the idea of fellowship or relationship. Jesus is really saying, accompany me. And I think that Peter felt, and I certainly uh, feel that way as well in some measure. I'd rather experience God's presence, Jesus's presence in my life at death than to live life without experiencing his presence in my life. Life is a terrible thing apart from the presence of God, in my opinion. Now, when I read 
this passage, I'm uh, always reminded, and there's a couple of other passages in the Bible that remind me of the same thing. I'm always reminded of an old saying that was made uh, popular in a movie about a Scottish freedom fighter of the late 13th century named William Wallace. And so they ascribed this quote to him. And, uh, but the fact of the matter is, is that the saying didn't come from that William Wallace, but actually came from a different William Wallace, a William Ross Wallace, who was a Scottish-American poet of the 19th century. He was most famous for his uh, poem about the importance of motherhood, containing the line, the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. But the other statement that he made that he's most famous for is, every man dies, but not Every man really lives. Every man dies. We're all going to die. But not every man really lives. The fact of the matter is that life, true life, life, the life that we've been created for, the only life that ultimately matters is found in an obedient relationship with God. Obedient to his word. Obedient to his Individual will and purposes for our lives. Everything else is mere existence. Every, every other life is infinitely inferior. Just an existence. Whether it's a dog-eat-dog existence, or whether it's I possess everything in the whole wide world existence, it is still a mere existence. There is no life superior to the one that God has called us to as Christians. No matter how great the hardship we face, no matter how great the persecution we may face in being faithful to God's will for our lives, the only alternative is an empty and meaningless life and existence. And that's why Jesus declared, and he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake, that's speaking of his will, will find it. Through the Apostle Paul, the Holy Spirit describes such a life as being dead while we live. A person can be alive physically and dead in every other way. The life of the person who has the most power, the most wealth, the most access to pleasure and experience in life that does not know the Lord, compared to the life of the simplest Christian, their life is just, it is mere existence. It is actually to be dead while they live. That's how heaven sees it. That's how God sees it. God who knows the truth about everyone, the quietness of our own hearts and our lives. What Jesus knew about Peter's life and his death, he also knows about each of our lives and each of our deaths, barring the rapture. And I am open to the rapture option, by the way. As with Peter, God knows the timing of our death. God knows when we're going to die. This morning, he, he knows all about our lives. He knows all, including the timing of our deaths. The Bible says that we spend our lives as a tale that is told in the eyes of God. He sees my life 
already lived and spent. He already sees me in the glory of heaven. That's the perspective of God. So he knows everything about our lives as Christians, and he knows how it is that we're going to die. He also uh, he also he knows when we're going to die. He also knows the way that we're going to die. And yes, like Peter, there's going to be some set of circumstances associated with it. And and there's going to be some cause of death that's going to be listed in the obituary. There'll be some act of violence or there'll be some accident that will occur or there'll be some disease that will will happen. But the real cause of death for the child of God who lives obedient to God's word, obedient to his will, is that our ministries are over. And when our ministries are over, it's time for us to go home to heaven. I think about the book of Revelation, always in this vein, in Revelation chapter 11, where it talks about the two witnesses for the Lord um, that are witnessing for him during the great tribulation period. And every attempt is made by the devil and by the Antichrist in order to try and slay these two witnesses. And no harm could be done to them until the day that their ministries were over and it was time for them to then enter into the glory of heaven. And so it is God that, that for the child of God, determines that date, determines that time, and it's only after our ministries are through, whatever the physical circumstances uh, might be. And that is a great thing to rest in for the child of God. God will give us the grace to be faithful to him when death does come in our lives. Sometimes uh, you'll hear someone, and I've heard it a few times in my Christian life, where maybe the minister will challenge the uh, audience of the Christians at church and and uh, ask them something about whether they would confess or deny Jesus even in the face of death or a gun put to their head or whatever kind of thing they come up to make it a little more dramatic. I don't particularly care uh, for that that kind of thing and, and proposing it that way because if God called us to such a thing, then he will give us the grace to face it in a way that would glorify God. The same way that he did with Peter. God will not give us the grace that we'll, we will need on that day today. So I don't want to talk to an audience about what they may need in the future if they don't need that grace today and ask them if they have that grace. But we should know that we will have that grace when the day comes. He gives us the grace that we need for what we will face today, today. And when the day of death comes, on that day he will supply us with all the grace we need to face it, just as he did with Peter and with countless millions since. And we'll be able to face death on that day, able to say to ourselves, Jesus knows all about this. He knew about it when he called me to be his disciple. He's going to be faithful to me, not only in life, but he's going to be faithful to me in death. And so he will. We notice also that he will be with us when we die. Uh, the psalmist wrote Psalm 116, verse 15, a famous verse in the Psalms. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And what that verse speaks of is the presence of the Lord 
at the death of every single one of his children, every Christian, every single saint. He is present at that death. We learn also in verse 19 that it's possible to glorify God not only in life, but also to glorify him in death. So if death is coming, barring the rapture, if death is coming to each of our lives, and that's a reality that's in our future, aren't you glad you came today? <laughs> aren't you glad you invited your friends? But since that's real and since that's in our future, then, of course, we think about it again with a little more maturity as Christians through the Holy Spirit's working in our lives. And we think, well, I want to glorify God in my life. But when the day of death comes, I want to glorify him in my death as well. And so Jesus speaks here, or the, the Holy Spirit writes here related to this, that for Peter, this was the, the death by which he would glorify God. His death glorified God. And it's wonderful to realize that even our death can glorify God. So I ask myself, what are some of the ways that God can be glorified in my death. I think he's glorified in our death if we die while following him. And that's the biggest thing. Because Jesus said to Peter, follow me. That when the time of Peter's death came, that he would die in an active, accompanying, following relationship with the Lord Jesus. We glorify God by our death if we die while walking close to him and not in some backslidden state or questionable spiritual state. I think one of the most difficult things that someone can do to their loved ones after they die is to die in some questionable spiritual state where their children or a husband or a wife or friends or other family members are not sure of their eternal destination because they didn't make it clear by their life. To die, the importance of dying while walking unmistakably close to the Lord. One time many years ago when my wife Karen and I were uh, very new Christians, we had gone on vacation to Southern California with our two daughters and with Karen's parents to Disneyland. And so while we were down there, of course, we wanted to attend Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa and listen to Pastor Chuck teach face to face. And so we made that a part of our vacation plans and went there on the Sunday morning. And imagine my disappointment. I mean, I had listened to so many of Pastor Chuck's teachings on cassette tapes. And uh, and so. Imagine my disappointment as they announced that Pastor Chuck was not going to be there that morning, but they had a guest speaker. So they introduced the guest speaker. Boy, he better be good. So they introduced the guest speaker. It was one of Pastor Chuck's former teachers in Bible college, a man by the name of Guy Duffield. Guy Duffield took that pulpit, and I'm telling you, it was like the Holy Spirit exploded a bomb in the room. The dynamic, the life of what he was teaching and the truth. I remember the sermon. Now, 30, almost 30 years later, remember the sermon to this day. Fascinating thing about 
Guy Duffield, is he went to be with the Lord at about just just short of 89 years of age. And and when he was buried and put in the casket, he requested that he be buried with a Bible in his right hand and a fork in his left hand. Now, we understand the reason for the Bible, but uh, why the fork? And Guy Duffield used to tell a story of a woman whose health was failing and she gave her pastor instructions that when she died, she wanted to be buried with a Bible in her right hand and a fork in her left hand. And, of course, she said the Bible because of how much the word of God has meant to me all of my Christian life. And she said when she was questioned by her pastor concerning the fork, she said, well, the church has meant so much to me. And I've been to so many wonderful potlucks. And when the dinner is over and they come to pick up the plates, they would always say, keep your forks. The best is yet to come. Always speaking of the dessert. And Guy Duffield, I mean, here's this great spiritual warrior with a sense of humor and a little bit of whimsy there. And uh, he wanted everyone at his coronation service to know his attitude toward both life and death and that the life had been good as, as it had been directed by God's word, but that the best was yet to come, the heaven that he had graduated into. There's something wonderful about watching someone live strong for the Lord and die strong for the Lord. We glorify God in our death if we die having served him to the end, being obedient to God's call upon our life all the way to the end. I think about John Huss in this vein, one of the great reformers and preachers of God's word in the city of Prague. His story, again, told in Fox's Book of Martyrs with so many others. But he was ministering in the early 1400s, and he was ordered by the Roman Catholic Church to cease his teaching of the Bible and his declaring that salvation was based solely upon faith in Jesus Christ and that a relationship with God could be found through that simple faith in Jesus as the Bible taught. And on June 7th, 1415, he appeared before a council of Catholic bishops in Constance, Germany, to defend himself. But at that trial, he was not allowed to speak. And instead, he was imprisoned. And on June 6th, 1415, on his 42nd birthday, the hangman stripped Huss of his clothes, tied his hands behind him, chained his neck to a stake. Straw and wood were piled up around him to his chin. And then the fire was lit. And at the last moment, the Duke of Bavaria urged us to recant only to receive the heroic reply. What I taught with my lips, I seal with my blood. And as the flames rose up around him, Huss was heard to cry out over and over again, Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, have mercy upon me until the flames ultimately uh, choked him out. And they kept the fire burning, not only to make an example of him, not only to the point that he died, but until his body was reduced to ashes. And even then, uh, uh, they didn't give the ashes a proper burial, but they threw it, uh, threw them into the Rhone River. On July 1st, 1555, John Bradford, 
was burned to death at the stake in England. And he was a chaplain to King Edward VI of England, was one of the most popular preachers of his day, but circumstances changed in England at that time, and he was martyred for his faith. And as he was being driven out to Newgate to be burned, permission was given him to speak, and from the wagon in which he rode to his death, the entire way from West London to Newgate, he shouted, Christ, Christ, none but Christ. John Huss and John Bradford uh, served and glorified the Lord all the way until the end. That's our Christian heritage. That's, that's the, the blood that has been shed for us to be able to hear the truth in the year 2011 concerning the things of Christ. J.C. Ryle, famous Bible teacher, now long ago with the Lord, he said that the death of a saint may have more of an effect on the minds of those in this world than all of the sermons they ever preached. And it's true. The glorifying of God, even in our death, the powerful impact that it can have upon others. God can be glorified at our death if we face death with peace, with the knowledge that the peace of knowing that all of this comes out of his foreknowledge, all of it out of his perfect will for our lives. Again, that's the peace that Peter had as he could speak so uh, candidly concerning his death. Again, knowing this shortly that I must put off my tent just as our Lord Jesus showed me. Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John in the early church, and he was the pastor at the church of Smyrna, one of the seven churches uh, that Jesus wrote to in the book of Revelation, and uh, a pastor there for many, many years. He was burned at the stake in Smyrna in uh, 155 A.D. He'd been a Christian for 86 years. And when the proconsul told him to deny his faith in the Lord Jesus in order to spare his life, Polycarp answered, Eighty-six years I have served him, and he has never once wronged me. Why would I forsake him now? And so for the Christian, death is simply another opportunity to glorify God. This is certainly how the Apostle Paul viewed death, and he would die a martyr's death himself. He wrote to the church at Philippi, According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now, <clears throat> excuse me, also Christ will be magnified. <clears throat> so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. God can be glorified in our death if we face death with the confidence of a better world to come. Again, examples from our heritage. Robert Glover, who died in 1555, he was dragged from a sickbed, thrown into a dismal prison and burned at the stake. And the whole trip as he was on the way to the stake he saw, as he was making that trip, he saw a friend of his in the crowd. He began to clap his hands, and he cried out to this friend called Austin, Austin, he comes, he comes, speaking of the Lord. 
Roland Taylor, one of many English martyrs in the days of Queen Anne, before his head was split open with an axe and then burned at the stake, he declared, Now I lack but two steps, and I am even in my father's house. Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And they believed it. They believed that promise of Christ. God can be glorified at our death if, while facing death, we testify to others of the hope and the confidence that we have because of the gospel. The time, at the time of death, at the time of the test of death, that test gives a strong impact to our words concerning our hope to those around us who are watching how we then handle death as Christians. I love the account of the great theologian and scientist, uh, Sir Michael Faraday, who was on his deathbed. And someone came to his deathbed uh, and tried to comfort him with some man-made speculation concerning death. <laughs> Michael Faraday, with his remaining strength, he cried out to the man. He said, speculations. He said, I know nothing about speculations. I'm resting on certainties. I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. (laughs) God can be glorified at our death if we leave behind us a family, a neighborhood, a city, a world that's been impacted or changed in some big way or small way by our relationship with God, just as Peter did. It was interesting that this last Christmas season, I think they had a, a um, kind of voting about what was the best you know, holiday film. And I think this year as the people were voting on it or whatever, it's a wonderful life one. I think it's always in the top one or two when that happens. About a man in a small town, most of you are familiar with it, and a banker who... Uh, then sacrificially lives his life for that community. And and, uh, and it's a modern-day kind of parable of of how different a place or a city can be uh, on the basis of of the faithfulness of just a single life and how, um, how differently it can be for good, how differently it could be for bad if the, if the person did not live or did not live the way that they were supposed to. And I like that movie because it, it speaks a truth that is true about every single one of our lives. We don't have to strive. We don't have to have a ministry like Peter, anything like that. We just have to simply follow Jesus where he has put us And then it's up to God to use that to glorify him. And so I think, honestly, we have no idea how powerfully God uses the normal in the simple 
uh, the daily in life and as it's exercised through a Christian's life. You think about your life as a child and even as an adult. Sometimes we think it's going to be some gigantic bombs bursting in air event that causes a light to turn on or for something to click or something to go into our memory that we will die with. And yet so often in life, it's something that a child says or something that an old woman says or something that we witness in another person's life. And God is so faithful not to waste any of that. And so we can look at our lives and try to judge and say, what difference is it making? And, you know, it, it just I'm in this place of relative obscurity and and all God will make it powerful to those he wants to make it powerful to our lives individually come into contact with a certain part of the population that Peter didn't come into contact with. And Billy Graham doesn't come into contact. And Franklin Graham doesn't come into contact with. And Chuck Smith doesn't come into contact with. Or whoever it might be. But they come into contact with you. And me. And God will make these little things of our lives as powerful as that they can possibly be. Deaths like these. That we're reading about here today. They leave a mark on the living, and they're not forgotten so soon. We can tend to think of a martyr solely as someone who has died for their faith, and that's how we think of martyr, as somebody that has died for their faith. But it's very important to realize that the Bible's use of the word martyr is, it, 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 it speaks of a living martyr. A person can be a living martyr as much as a dead martyr because it's the way that it's used in the Bible. It means a witness in Jesus's letter to the church at Pergamos recorded in Revelation chapter two. He referred to a man by the name of Antipas and he referred to him as my faithful martyr. And the word martyr literally means witness. And the point that Jesus is making about this man by the name of Antipas is that he was a martyr long before he ever died. James Calvert went out as a missionary to the cannibals at that time of the Fiji Islands. And as the captain of the ship that brought him to the Fiji Islands and those that were with him cried out to him as he was disembarking the ship to uh, stay at the Fiji Islands. He said, you'll lose your life and the lives of those with you if you go among such savages. John James Calvert, rather, he only replied, we died before we came here. You see, death doesn't make us a martyr. It merely reveals us to be one. And thus a person can live their entire life fully committed to obeying the Lord and God's will for our lives and never face death as a result of that will and still live a martyr's life and still die a martyr's death. You don't have to go to a foreign land and have your life put into danger. A martyr's life can be lived right here in Modesto. That's how the Apostle Paul describes it. Galatians chapter 2. Verse 20, though alive, this is what he said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live 
by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The Christian life is intended to be a martyr's life, expressed both in life and in death, and it is the only life that is worth living in this world. Again, Jesus taught, and he said to his disciples, to us as Christians, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and here it is, follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. The fascinating thing is that Jesus spoke that not to the world who might have at that moment some audience where they are spending their whole life for the things of the world. Jesus spoke that to disciples because all the way through this life there is within us until we receive our new bodies. There is a temptation and a tendency in each of us to throw off the will of God for our lives when it begins to cost us something and certainly when we face death in order to be faithful to that will. And it is the strength of passages like this, and I like the strength of passages like this, and I need the strength of passages like this because my flesh wants to retreat into a place of self-preservation and ease as much as anybody's flesh wants to do that. And it's passages like this that stir up the heroic within us by the witness and the power of the Holy Spirit within our lives to remind us that vacating or abandoning the will of God for our lives isn't even on the table to be considered. The only option is to live in obedience to God's word and his calling, whatever the cost might be. And though it requires a death to self, death to our selfishness and our self-will in order to say yes to God, I'll tell you, it yields the richest life a person can live. The deepest relationship with God that's possible, this side of heaven. The development of a godly character that we would not otherwise know short of this kind of a commitment to the Lord. It prepares us for heaven in a way that nothing else does. And it assures that in our future is a well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord from the very lips of our Savior to our ear as we head into eternity. These are the priceless things that are found only in God's will for our lives. And thus Jesus, without apology, without regret, unflinchingly calls Peter and calls us to live that kind of life. 
It is the greatest life a person can live. Everything else is just mere existence. Everything else is at its best, emptiness and frustration. And to Peter's credit, he was faithful to Jesus' call. And so can we be faithful because of the same Holy Spirit that filled him, fills us and gives us the grace that we need to live such a life. This is a mature view of death. This is a biblical view of death. This will never be taught us by the culture and the nation and the world that we live in. These are things that God speaks to us about death to us as Christians so that we can face it in a mature fashion in our own individual lives with him when the day comes to our lives and do so with an ability to bring glory to him even in the final days and weeks and hours and minutes of our lives which is the desire of our life and the only thing that makes life worth living let's stand together and we'll pray Father, we thank you this morning for the strength of this passage. We thank you for the priceless perspective that it brings to our lives. We thank you for the challenge that it brings to our lives, Lord, the comfort and encouragement that it brings to our lives. Thank you for what is written in your word, Lord, that allows us to view death in the light of you and of your perspective and of your victory, Jesus, a shared victory with us. And we thank you that we have the ability in our Christian life to prepare for that day and not to have it surprise us, Lord, when it does come and then to face it in a mature, Christ-honoring way. And Lord, I pray and we pray for one another that however this passage is intended to impact each of our lives today, that the impact would not cease in this room or with my speaking, but that the voice of your spirit, Lord, would continue to minister to each one of us, each place that we are, Lord, in our life and in our pilgrimage and in our walking in your will, Lord, in this life. We look to you for that ongoing ministry of your Holy Spirit through your word, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.